This sermon is brought to you by Buford Road Baptist Church. The speaker today is Pastor Tony Cahoot. We're in the middle of a series entitled, When He Spoke. Seven times Jesus was on the cross, he spoke. And we're breaking down each one of those things that he said, and we have developed it into a sermon series. And so if you have your Bibles already in hand, I'd like for you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 27, and we will get all of the scriptures that we reference today on the screens. And uh, by no means do I want to substitute these screens for your personal Bible. I think that we can become too lax in the Word, not just by not reading it, but turning to its pages and being familiarized where these books are. So we don't want you to just rely upon this. We want you to take your Bible. If you have, you don't have a Bible, let us know. We'll be glad to get you a copy of the Word of God. Somebody gave me a few Bibles not too long ago, and we have Bibles to give you if you don't have one. But you need to be familiar with all 66 books from Genesis to Revelation. And I think it would do you good as a believer to learn these books in order. You say, well, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Listen, you'd be surprised. You get in the Word and let it bless your heart. And learn the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Learn how to quote them. And then you get into the New Testament and you begin with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You Listen, you can do it. It just takes time. Take some time every day in the Word. Again, don't put your Bible on the shelf. It's the Word of God. The Bible says it will not return void. And so we pray that you will use it for His glory. Now again, in this series, when He spoke, today we're talking about the fourth time Jesus spoke, and we are entitling today's message the words of affection. As I began to prepare this particular sermon for this fourth time Jesus spoke without exception, I think that whenever we all think of the cross, and we've heard many stories about it, and in this particular series we have rehearsed the barbaric ways that Jesus was treated from the time that he was illegally tried after he was apprehended out of Gethsemane all night long, and then the brutal ways that they treated him, I think whenever we think of the cross, that's predominantly what we are reminded of. But we think about the purple robe, we think about the spit upon his face, we think about the crown of thorns, and rightly so, and we should. But if we're not careful when we think about the cross, I think it would be very easy for us to forget about the deep spiritual warfare going on that from our eyes are invisible. Because the Bible says that we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with principalities. And so while there was unbelievable 
things happening to Jesus from Gethsemane to the cross, which we well can read and visualize, there are spiritual things happening around the cross in this crucifixion that if we're not careful, we will not be able to see. And so that's what I want to focus on this morning. I want us not only to think about some of the things that we cannot see, but I want us to also think about what the Father saw on his side of the cross. And so this morning we've entitled this message, The Words of Anguish. And so if you have your Bibles in Matthew 27, I want you to look with me beginning in verse number 39, and I want to read for you down through verse 46. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads. Of course, I think you can imagine what that means. People paraded by the cross saying vile things, mocking him, blaspheming him, shaking their heads. You can get, you understand this. In verse 40, and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days. Now, Jesus didn't make that statement, but he was not talking about stones and structure. He was talking about himself. The stone that the builders rejected. Now look at this. Save thyself, they say in verse number 40. If thou be the son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, also the chief priest mocking him with the scribes and elders said, he saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he be king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. That's a lie. Abraham said no one would believe even if they came back from the dead. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now. If he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. The thieves also, which were crucified with him, cast the same in his teeth. And we talked about the thief on the cross that repented a few Sundays ago. But let me tell you this, in the beginning of this horrific ordeal, that thief that asked Jesus to remember him, in the beginning of this whole episode, acted as vile and wicked as the thief who mocked Jesus on the cross. Again, the thieves also which were crucified with him cast the same. They were equally vile in his teeth. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sapanakbi. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? 
Now, the words that Jesus spoke for the fourth time on the cross staggers the imagination. And for me, it seems as though a deep, cold chill penetrates to the heart of our soul every time we read them. And I wonder if reading the Word of God affects you the same way that it affects me. Because setting being a pastor aside and someone who is in the Word constantly, I I don't know how you could just read these words and they would mean nothing to you. When I read them, it staggers my imagination. In fact, there's a prophetic psalm about this in Psalms chapter 22 and verse number 1, and it's a prophecy of this particular stage of the cross. It's a messianic psalm where Jesus spoke these penetrating words. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me? And from the words of my roaring. When I think about these words as they were written way, way back in the Old Testament, how they are now being fulfilled in this fourth saying of the cross. This is one of the things that I conclude from this study, and that is this, in one way, Jesus felt the horrors of hell when he spoke these words. You say, what do you mean, preacher, by that? The Bible says this, for the wages of sin is death, and we will refer to that scripture again in just a few moments. For the wages of sin is death. That means eternal separation from God. Can can you imagine what it would be like? There... Hell is full of billions of lost souls today. But can you imagine having the sentence of condemnation upon you forever where there is no halftime, there is no recess, there is no time out to be, listen now, eternally separated from God forever. That's the wage of sin. For the wages of sin is death. That's talking about eternal separation. But the gift of God, there's an interruption, but the gift of God, whoever chooses to receive it, is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So here is the thing. For a moment, when Jesus spoke these words, Why hast thou forsaken me? For a moment, Jesus experienced the horrors of hell because everybody in hell today and everybody that will be in hell tomorrow and everybody that will be in hell for eternity will be separated from God forever. So when Jesus spoke these words from the cross, Why hast thou forsaken me? He was experiencing 
some of the horrors of hell. As we reflect upon the pages of Scripture that describes the final hours of the Lord's earthly ministry, we see him on the cross as God's spotless, sinless lamb without blemish, yet willfully taking upon himself the vile sin and shame of the entire world. We see him with the sentence of condemnation. We see the guiltless by illegal trial. Now they have declared him guilty. We see the perfect one who is now persecuted. We see the faultless one now accused. We see the one so pure and so holy with the weight of the sin of the world upon his shoulders. He is taken, listen now, he is beaten beyond human recognition. Isaiah said his face was so marred that no man would know him. They have plucked his beard. He has human spittle dripping off of his chin. Somehow that doesn't move everybody. Somehow people can read this and they can hear of it and it does nothing to their spirit. God help anybody that that does not affect. His blood is trickling down his body. He has had the flesh of his back whipped off of his bone, exposing his vital organs. The crown of thorns are two inches deep, pressing to the bone of his skull. His hands have been pierced. His feet have been pierced. Everything in his body has been bruised and battered in such a way that an average person experiencing this type of crucifixion would have already died. While he is going through all of this physical torment, hanging naked on the cross in humiliation, he now also is taking the weight of sin upon him. He is taking all rebellion, all blasphemies of Satan, every single wicked act, every single wicked imagination, all the dishonesties and immoralities and all kinds of pain and sorrow, all of these things are weight upon the shoulders of Jesus as he is hanging, being crucified. And in the midst of it all, one person, listen now, the one person whom Jesus needed most of all has now turned his back and covered his eyes. At this moment when Jesus is hanging exposed like this, with his body bruised and beaten and battered, He did not need Peter, James, and John. He did not need his mother Mary. He didn't need a wonderful, restful, peaceful place on the Galilee. He needed God. But at this particular moment, Jesus recognized that his father had turned his Face away. He had turned away from him. There's no doubt that in this stage of the cross, Jesus hurt more than any man could have possibly hurt. 
by any of these things done to him at this point. I mean, when you think about, listen carefully, when you think about all of the brutality, when you think about the nails, the nails were a small thing compared to having God turn away. Even though the crown of thorns that were penetrating the bone in his skull, it was a small thing in comparison to having God turn away. Jesus spoke for the fourth time, and and his words to me as I read seem so uncomprehendable. But these mysterious words that Jesus spoke, I think, would be explained by God himself. Jesus asked the question, but I think as we study this, it would be God himself who gives the answer. Now again, look with me in verse number 46 of our text today, Matthew chapter 27. And the word says this, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sapnathai, that is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Here's the thing that I want you to see at this part of the message today. Some of you may have never seen this before. Maybe you've read it a hundred times and it's gone over your head. Oh, in Jesus' name, I would pray that you get this today. When Jesus spoke these words, listen carefully. This is the only time when Jesus prayed, he did not say, Father. He did not hang on the cross, expose the way that he was, and say, Father, why have you forsaken me? Father, why have you turned your back? It's the only time in the scripture when he prayed, he did not say, Father. That's significant. When he was 12 years old, he had snuck away from Mary and Joseph at the age of 12. He was in the temple. He was teaching the doctors and the lawyers and the scribes, the Pharisees, Mary and Joseph come in there and Mary begins to rebuke him. Where have you been, Jesus? The caravan has left. No one could find you. What are you doing? Where have you been? Do you remember what he said as a 12-year-old boy? I'm busy about my father's business. When Jesus taught us to pray, he teaches the disciples, he teaches you and me. He said, when you pray, you pray, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. When he was in Gethsemane and he was praying with great sweat of blood running into his eyes, he said with the pain in his heart, Father, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. 
every time he prayed, he prayed, Father, Father. But now he's hanging on the cross and he is exposed in every possible way. And now with great anguish and pain, he doesn't say, Father. Perhaps somebody in this auditorium has been forsaken by somebody that you have deeply loved through the years of your life. Maybe you've had the heartbreak of being forsaken by somebody you loved. Maybe, maybe somebody's here today and you have been forsaken by a spouse, whether recently or perhaps many years ago. Maybe there's somebody here today that has been forsaken by a friend that you love dearly. Gail and I say this all the time. It seems as though in our lives, the people that we have been as close to and love the most hurt us the worst. Maybe you feel that you have been exposed You've experienced this thing about being forsaken by good health. You had perfectly good health. And that all of a sudden you get this news. I'm telling you, there are people all around me that are telling me left and right, left and right. Pastor, I'm going through this thing here. I mean, even with this morning, uh, Brother Joe was in the hospital with, with a heart attack and and uh, Brother Jerry's got to have a hernia surgery. And Gail's got to have kidney stone surgery. Brother Greg's in the hospital. Who knows what's going to happen to his foot? It, it seemed like it's all around us. And, and we think that, okay, we're in good health. But then you're going to your doctor's appointment, just going in for a checkup. Hey, and they're knocking on your heart's door saying, hey, you've got to get to this test and this doctor quick. You're in stage one. I think about this just for a moment. This is an agonizing thing for Jesus. Maybe there's somebody here today. You're experiencing this thing about being forsaken. And I will say being forsaken in any kind of form whatever it is that you feel that you have been forsaken from, any kind of being forsaken, it can bring deep, agonizing, penetrating pain to your soul. You, you will feel emotionally forsaken, maybe physically forsaken, maybe spiritually forsaken. I, I believe that a man who feels forsaken, listen, there, there is... There is an element of sadness and sorrow and depression when we feel forsaken, whatever it is. But I will tell you the, the most brutal thing that a person can experience in this realm of being forsaken. Can you imagine being forsaken by God? I want you to think about that just for a moment. Wouldn't it be a horrible thought if we could get ourselves in such a mess and we perfect the mess in our life. 
From time to time, we get ourselves caught up in some kind of mess, some kind of mire. Oh, we've heard about the love of God and we sing about the love of God and we raise our hands in the praise and worship and we enjoy the good preaching or we enjoy uh, the great singing or whatever and we're familiarized with scriptures. But let me tell you this, what kind of a nightmare would it be? A horrible thought to think that we could get ourselves in such a mess and such a dilemma where we actually thought that God did not want to speak to us anymore. We, we recognize from human emotion that sometimes we make a mess of our life. And we've always heard through the word that no matter what, he still loves us. But just imagine for a moment, if there was a place, a turn, a situation in our life where we could make such a mess of it that God said, you know what? I'm not dealing with this. Where God would just throw his hands up and say, you know what? This is too big of a mess. I've got a world to take care of. I've got billions of prayers to answer. But I'll tell you, this thing that you have done is just too completely uncomprehendable and I'm not dealing with it. And the devil might have whispered that to you before. He may have whispered, you have just made such a mess of your life that God is going to scratch your name out of the Lamb's book of life. By the way, which he will never do if you belong to him. You can imagine what it would be like if one day we went to God in the vile mess and the corruption of our lives. And we felt with deep, earnest sorrow that the Holy Spirit of God was breaking us to a place of repentance. And we cried with bitter tears. Out of my bondage, sorrow, and night, Jesus, I come to thee. Wouldn't it be a nightmare if we, in this process, thought that we could get ourselves in such a dilemma that God had just given up on us and God was not there when he cried out to us. Let me give you some assurance this morning. It doesn't matter who you are, where you've been, what you've done. The Bible says this in Jeremiah 33, 3, call unto me and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things. It does not matter who you are, where you've been, what you've done. You make a mess. Listen, God specializes in cleaning up messes. Somebody say amen. Before I preach myself in a suicide, somebody say amen. Hallelujah. He specializes in this. Call unto me is what he said. Call unto me. But just suppose you did that one day and he didn't answer. Suppose he wasn't there. Suppose he couldn't be found for a moment. Think with me. That's exactly what Jesus prayed. And that's exactly what Jesus experienced. My God, why hast thou forsaken me? 
I want you to think about this. Here's what we need to remember. Jesus had been with the Father from all eternity past. In eternity past, he had been the object and affection of the Father's love. The Father's presence was his home. The Father's bosom was his. The Father's dwelling place was his. The Father's glory was his. And together they shared everything before anything ever was. There was nothing ever between Jesus and the Father. From the beginning and during the Lord's 33 and a half years of earthly ministry, they had enjoyed unbroken communion. They were never out of fellowship. They were never out of harmony. And now for the very first time, Jesus is forsaken by the Father. The fellowship is broken. And the interesting thing is this. While Jesus was in this moment of the cross, there is no voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. At this particular stage of the crucifixion, Jesus is speaking these uncomprehendable words. There are no angels that has been sent to be an encouragement to him. And all of the disciples have fled. And on top of that, he was doing exactly what the Father sent him to this earth to do. This is his mission, to seek and to save that which was lost. He was obedient, and as the scripture says, obedient even unto the death of the cross. He was doing what the Father demanded. He was paying the price of redemption. He was fulfilling the reason. Luke 19.10 again specifies this. He was doing the Father's will only to be forsaken at this terrible moment of the cross. But here's the important thing that we need to remember, that if in the beginning... God knew his only begotten son would have to die, that he would have to shed his blood on the cross, that he would have to go through all the horrors of Calvary. Then he also knew that it would require him, God the Father, to turn his back on his only begotten while Jesus was hanging on the cross. God was willing to put Jesus through all of that for you and me and put himself through that experience. It wasn't just Jesus experiencing the forsakenness of God. But God put himself in the experience of having to turn his back. Now, friend, if that doesn't move you, I question your salvation. Think about this. In the days of old, God did not forsake his people. He was constantly giving his people assurance of his presence. 
giving them all kinds of signs and indications. He always assured them that he was near. When the flood came upon the earth, Noah could look around inside of the ark and he could see the protecting hand of God. When the children of Israel were facing the Red Sea, they saw God parting the water. In the wilderness, they saw him in the cloud by day and the fire by night. On Mount Carmel, Elijah, he saw God in the fire falling down from heaven. In the fiery furnace, the three Hebrew boys, they saw the fourth man in the fire. In the lion's den, Daniel saw God in the gentleness of the lions. God never forsook his people, ever. And think about this. God likewise, as in the days of old, has promised never to forsake us. In Hebrews chapter 13 and verse number 5, the Bible says, Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. But here on the cross, God did something that he had never ever done before. He had turned his back on the Savior, on the only begotten Son. And when Jesus spoke these words, it was a greater cry than the cry that had come out of Egypt. The first time Jesus spoke, he said, Father, forgive them. The second time he spoke to the thief, this day thou shalt be with me in paradise. The third time he spoke, he spoke to his mother, woman, behold thy son. And now the fourth time he cries out to God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is a cry that made the whole earth tremble. And I will tell you this, it ought to make our soul tremble. Let me give you some things real quickly here. And I want to go through this very fast. If you're following along in the bulletin today, look at number one. I want us to see something. What do we see in these words? My God, why hast thou forsaken me? Number one, we see the awfulness of sin. Jesus died for sin, not to fulfill some type of historic event. Not that people would write beautiful music and songs about him or beautiful poems about him. Jesus died because of sin. And you know, it's amazing how people no longer, listen carefully, church, and especially those of you that are watching today by internet, listen very carefully. It's amazing, amazing how people no longer consider sin to be sin anymore. It seems like every day we, we tolerate more and more. We, we know the difference between right and wrong. The scripture says, therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. But it seems like every day we live because of social media, because of personalities, Sports heroes, tabloids, YouTube, Facebook. It seems like every which way we turn, we're being influenced by a demonic inspiration, a demonic whisper. And slowly but surely, we're being infiltrated with, with all sorts of things. It clouds our minds. Listen, things we believed 
that were wrong yesterday, somehow we have gravitated towards believing some mysterious way how that they have become right today. We are tolerating things today that we would never have tolerated yesterday. But let me give you one clear truth on all of this stuff that's happening to society and our minds and our heart and our world and in our government. Listen carefully. Whatever God considered to be sin, whenever this book was written, God still considers it to be sin today. And if Jesus tarries is coming, he will consider it to be sin 200 years from now. Think about this. We are so influenced and so gullible. We need to remember that though we may get used to modern tendencies and acceptances and all of these things, listen, God has never, ever changed his mind on sin. God despises it. We need to understand the price of it. In Romans 6, 23, the Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. And so it's sad that a lot of people do not find out about the true horrors of sin until it's too late. On the cross, God turned his back on the awfulness of sin. Number two, we see the absolute holiness and inflexible justice of God. In Proverbs 11.31, the word says, Behold, the righteous shall be recompensed in the earth much more, the wicked and the sinner. God can never excuse sin. He can never become flexible to it. Listen, God will never reconsider the matter. He can never compromise with it. The only thing that God can do with sin, he can do one of two things. He can judge it or he can forgive it. That's all he can do with it. And people today are losing the importance of the holiness of God. God is so holy that the writers of the Old Testament, when they would get to certain passages of Scripture where it would include God's name, Jehovah, they would lay their pens down and they would go and bathe, come back, redress, and start again. Because of sin, listen now, God is holy. On the cross, God could not look into the blood-stained eyes of his only begotten son. This broke the heart of Jesus, and there is no doubt that he uttered these words with complete devastation. And it's a question that no one around the cross could answer. When Jesus cried out from the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? John couldn't give Jesus the answer. Mary couldn't give Jesus the answer. Jesus was forsaken by God because Jesus was enduring sin's terrible judgment. At the cross, God's justice was satisfied and his holiness was vindicated. Listen carefully. If God could not look upon sin, even when it was his only begotten son, then he surely can't look upon it when it's you and me. Number three, we see the explanation of Gethsemane. 
in the infancy of Jesus, he suffered at the hands of men. In his earthly ministry, he suffered at the hands of Satan. But on the cross, he was now suffering in the hands of God. Jesus knew that this would be part of the crucifixion. He was not oblivious to it. In Matthew 26, 39 through 36, I'm not going to have time to reread those scriptures again, but in this Gethsemane prayer, Jesus prayed three times for this cup to pass from him. From the point of his humanity, he knew he was going to face the barbaric cruelty of the cross. Jesus knew that he was going to be forsaken by God. And this was no doubt the greatest weight of the cross. He was saying, Father, if it be any other way, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. God said, no, you are the only way, the truth and the life, and no one can come to me but by you. Look at this now, number four. We see the Savior's unsevering fidelity to God. In John chapter 5 and verse number 20, the word says this, For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things, that himself do it. And he will show him greater works than these, that ye may marvel. This, when Jesus spoke these words, it was a cry of distress, but it was not a cry of distrust. And this ought to make us ashamed of ourselves for just how little it takes to get us discouraged. I mean, oh, come on, people. So much in the wind, in the air, in words, in happenings, in things. Oh, my goodness. Somehow, it turns our lives upside down. We, we are distraught. Want to lay in the bed, cover our heads up, mope and pout, and go through all kinds of things like this. So we, we get so discouraged and discontented so easily. We throw our hands up and we want to walk away from God. Oh, yeah. We don't mind standing in the church when the music plays and sing the old rugged cross. People do that all the time, every day, as long as there are no sacrifices, there are no heartbreaks, there are no headaches, there are no broken dreams, there's no struggles. I mean, if the cross was just a piece of jewelry that we hung around our neck, or a picture on the wall, or a steeple on the church house. People can deal with that. Where'd you get that cross? What, is it on sale? Where, where'd you get it? Oh, listen, we, we don't mind the cross. If it's a picture on the wall or something like that, but taking up the cross is another thing altogether, making it a part of our daily life. People don't want to do that. I mean, when the Roman soldier said, come down and save yourself, he could have said, listen, he could have said, let's, let's do some more brutality to him. Let's, let's put him through some awful things all over again. And he could have said to Jesus, if you are the son of God, come down and save yourself. Aren't you glad today Jesus didn't do it? Think about this. Number five, quickly. We see the basis of our salvation. 
Why do we have to be saved? Saved. Listen, we're not salvaged. We're saved. We don't have to pay any money for it. We don't have to climb any high mountains for it. We don't have to burn incense for it. It required the shedding of God's own blood through Jesus. Hebrews 9.22, And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood there's no remission. Listen, God is holy. He cannot look upon sin. He will judge it wherever it is found. But thank God, as well as He judge it, He delights in mercy. I love that old song that says, Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied for me. There my burden soul found liberty at Calvary. When Jesus shed his blood, he not only did that for us, but he did that for God as well. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse number 2, the word says, He hath given himself for us and an offering. Look at this part. And a sacrifice to God. For sweet-smelling savor. He not only died for us, but he died for God. God could now deal with us because of the blood. In Acts 20, 28, the word says that salvation has been purchased with his, God's own blood. Number six, and I call our musicians to come forward. And the last thing we see is the supreme evidence of Christ's love for us. In John 15, verse number 13, the Bible says, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Never forget, friend, Jesus suffered for us. He was made sin for us. He was forsaken by God for us. Jesus was separated from God three hours on the cross for us. And listen, when I think of what Jesus did for me on the cross. It makes me ashamed of myself when I think and compare what little we do for him. Friend, he gave his head to the cross. He gave his hands to the cross. He gave his feet to the cross. He gave his side to a Roman spear. He gave his blood to the dirt of the ground. He gave his mother back to the disciples. He gave everything he had for you and me that we could have eternal life and a home in heaven. He was forsaken by God. Listen now. Momentarily. It did not last long. But as I said in the beginning of this message, when Jesus was forsaken by God, Momentarily, he had experienced some of the horrors of hell. Can you think with me just for a moment? Imagine what it's going to be like for millions and millions and millions of people to be eternally separated forever. Because without Christ, without Jesus, that will happen. In Revelation 20:15, and I close with this verse. John the Revelator is writing, and he said, And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So, friend, today, let me say this. There's so much to see with these seven sayings when he spoke.
if you don't know, listen, if you can sit through preaching like this and let God's Word fall in your lap like this and it does nothing to your spirit, I beg you to come to Christ. I beg you to give your heart to Jesus. Because in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man has come. And you can talk about all the good things you did. How you went to church, gave your tithe, was nice to people, fed the hungry, clothed the naked, helped the poor. You can go through a whole list of things. And if you don't know Jesus, he will say, Depart from me, ye that work iniquity, for I never knew. I, I don't know what else to do. But if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, not on one knee, but two, I beg you to give your heart to Christ. You listen to Pastor Tony Cahoot. For more information, visit our website at BufordRoadBaptistChurch.com.